0: Our passage this morning comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's word. Amen. Please have a seat.
1: Great to see you made it out today. Have you been suffering under the snow? Do you look forward and hope to the spring and know one day this winter of 2015 will be gone? Then you're all set for the passage today. If you want in the Pew Bibles or in your own Bibles, you can open to Romans chapter 8 in the Pew Bibles. Most of your Pew Bibles will be page 944. Paul opens this passage with these words, the sufferings of this present time. I think these words transfer to us today. As we look around our world and we hear about Boko Haram and ISIS, we look at what's happening in the Middle East, Africa, pouring over now into the threats into the West, In North Korea, we hear of wars and plagues, human trafficking, poverty, oppression, genocide. We see that our world is suffering. And then we can turn to our own lives. They're not exactly the way we'd want them to be. Many of us or our loved ones are suffering illnesses or cancer Our jobs bring tremendous stress. We endure broken relationships. Our families are not exactly the way we would dream they would be. There's hurts and pain in every direction that we look. And this isn't new to our generation. Each generation pretty much see the same picture the picture that Paul saw during his time. Paul's suffering was as great, even greater than ours. But he endured it with patience. He found a joy in his life because he looked to the hope that the gospel offers. Let's pray. Our Lord, that word hope is so big. You think of 1 Corinthians, now these three, faith, hope, and love. We talk so much about faith. We talk about love. Yet hope, too, is so central to our lives. Lord, can you make that real to us today? I know just words aren't going to make it real, but your Spirit can give us that vision that Paul had of our eternal future, of the hope that is set before us. So that this life and all of its sufferings will be put into perspective. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Christians should be among the most pessimistic people on earth. And we should be the most optimistic people on earth. And that's what I see in this passage. It says, Grown and hope. We need to face life as it truly is and not think that somehow a utopia will descend upon us if we choose the right leaders or the right movement comes. There is no utopia just going to appear from human resources. Christians need to be honest to face that. But we're also the most optimistic because we know there is a utopia coming because Christ is going to bring it. And so we endure the groaning by looking to the hope. And that's what we see in this passage. So let's look at at those two points, the groaning. Uh, Verse 20, it says, Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Verse 21, the creation needs to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul gives voice to the creation and it says there is much suffering there is much to groan about. Do we delude ourselves to think that somehow this life will become the way we dream it would be? You know, I, I did. My early Christian days, uh, the gospel that was shared with me began, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, my, I, I misunderstood that. I interpreted it the way I wanted to interpret that, and I interpreted it as like, wow. God has a wonderful plan for my life, and I, I had a wonderful plan, and I figured that's what he's going to bring me. Uh, Jesus said, I came that you might have life abundantly, and I go, abundantly? All the treasures I've ever wanted in life, God, wow, he's going to revolve everything around me and make everything just really the way I desire it to be. And then I read scriptures about prayer. And it says, pray in Jesus' name and you get whatever you ask. And I'm thinking of the storehouse that stands before me and all I have to do is like, you know, pray and and, and I can get it. And I said, this, I, I like this Christian life. And then you hear the promise of Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. And I heard a nationally known speaker uh, talk about that verse and he shared how he had this great love relationship with this woman uh, his heart so tied to her but he really sensed and she sensed that God said you're not the perfect match for each other and so they broke up and he talked about as he was flying away he was crying because of the broken relationship and then he remembered Romans eight twenty eight: God causes all things to work together for good and he thought good I think this is good, but God's got a woman greater than she is for me. And I said, wow, I like that promise. There's always something greater if I lose it here. Now, 30 years later, it hasn't worked out that way for me. I haven't gotten everything I ask. I haven't quite figured out how some things are working for good. Uh, I have come to realize I misunderstood what God meant about the abundant life. But I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people who, have, who are, really have the wrong illusions as to what God is promising us here and now. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of a missionary who was martyred by the Aca tribe in Ecuador, and she and other widows went and still ministered to that tribe and saw conversions even of people who murdered her husband in a church that grew. Now that's that's God working all things together for good, right? But she also knew that not all missionaries had that kind of success. And she wrote a book called No Graven Image. And the book ends in tragedy, not in victory. And she says in the preface, as it turned out, many readers would have preferred a happily ever after ending. And they criticized me about the plot saying, I just can't believe that God would allow things like this to happen. And she says, sorry folks, he does we need to be realistic about the life that Jesus Christ is offering here. It is a life with the fruit of the Spirit. It is a life that is abundant in a spiritual dimension. But it's not without suffering. It's not without groaning. Jesus himself offers a corrective in John chapter 6. He does what we all hope he would do. He feeds 5,000 plus with bread and, and fish. He does the miracles the kind we would want him to always do. And so the people look at them and they say, this is great, I like this Christian life stuff. And so they seek to make him king. And Jesus rebukes that attitude. And he says, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you filled your stomachs with the bread. They sought him as king because they thought he could do beyond what Moses did when God fed them every day with manna and quail. They didn't seek him for the things that Christ came to give. Christ says, I did a miracle of physical bread so you would understand I am the spiritual bread of life. When we understand Romans 828, read the next three verses. The good that God is working us towards is the glory of becoming like Jesus Christ. Those are the things He's going to bring into our lives. We're not the only ones who are not realistic about life. Uh, A lot of unbelievers are also unrealistic. During my college years, uh, there were groups all around campus singing, all we are asking is give peace a chance. And the thought was, you know, if we really get together and, and we push for peace, we can bring peace to this world. We could have a utopia. And and I love the sentiment, and we should work for peace. And, and what they did moved our government to pull our troops out of Vietnam. And that bitterness and hatred just spilled over into Cambodia. And we live in a world where we can sing, give peace a chance. But there are wars everywhere. If we put down our arms today, Al-Qaeda is not putting their arms down. There will be wars. There's suffering here. Um, I had an experience, I was in Vista Volunteers, which is kind of the AmeriCorps of uh, a few years back, and I was with the other volunteers and in our, in our director, and our director said, ask the question, can we vanquish poverty? And I said, no, Jesus said the poor will always be with us. And there were other realistic volunteers, and they said, no, 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 no. And she thundered, what are you doing in Vista if you don't believe we can do away with poverty? We need to be realistic. The poor will always be with us. I worked to alleviate poverty. I would dream that it would be extinguished, but I know better. Not until our hope is fulfilled. I remember taking uh, my son to the playground. And I sat down with another woman. I actually had gone to Princeton Seminary. And she was watching some kids. And we got talking. Found out she was a social worker. And I started sharing the gospel. And I talked about how we have all sinned. And she said, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe we're sinners. I think we are basically good people. We're all good. And I responded, I would think you among all people would be the last to think that. As a social worker who sees the pain and the hurt and the sin of this world, and you see that it cannot be vanquished. You really believe people are basically good? She didn't respond. Sin fills our world. Many delude themselves about death. They use the Lion King thinking, symbol of life to comfort them, the circle of life to comfort themselves. In the movie Simba, the little cubs, his father says to him, when we die, our bodies become grass." The antelopes eat the grass and we eat the antelope. So we're all connected in the great circle of life. I'm sorry, that doesn't bring me a lot of comfort. <laughs> and yet that's what passes for comfort in death compared to what we're going to hear about, what Jesus is giving us. See, we, we've got to get honest Christians, we have to be honest. If you don't believe in Christ, you have to be honest. We can become honest when we understand the hope that is set before us. And that's what Paul talks about. He says, first, of course, the world is groaning. Um, and the word, the word groan here is used of, of pain, it was used of soldiers on the battlefield seeking help, groaning that somebody might come to save them. It's used of childbirth and the pain and the groaning that goes on. And in our generation, husbands got to see that. Incredible agony as a woman is about to give birth. The creation Groans says and it's groaning because it is corrupted. The second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, says whenever energy is transformed from one form to another form, entropy increases and energy decreases. In a sense, what it's saying is the world is not getting better in its transfer of energy. It is tearing down. Stars die, and one day our sun will die. The creation itself knows it is not what it was meant to be. We ourselves groan inwardly knowing that this world is not what it was meant to be. Eva Hoffman, a Jewish intellectual, got it right in the Lost in Translation. She said this, Ever since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden... There isn't anyone who doesn't in some way feel like an exile. We all feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romances, from our authentic self. An idealized sense of belonging in tuning with others and ourselves completely eludes us. She's saying if we're really honest with ourselves, we know, we know this world isn't the way it should be. And that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible explains that God created us to be in a paradise. Who changed that? Our sin did. And it, it affected creation and it affects us. It separates us from the God who loves us. It separates us from one another as we become selfish. Rather than loving, it separates us from our authentic selves as we cover ourselves with fig leaves, not faith, being able to face who we really are. We live in a fallen world, but Paul says this: He's real. He's honest. There's suffering in this present life. But he says, I consider that the suffering in this present life, this present time, are not worthy of comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. We groan, but if we're with Paul, we hope. And we see that groaning, that suffering is nothing compared to the glory that is to come. So, what is this glory? What is this new creation? Well, I see four things in this passage. First, it says, creation awaits the revealing of the sons of God. Aren't you excited about that? One day, you will be revealed as a son, daughter, of God. Uh, when Paul wrote this in Rome, Christians were the bottom of the social totem pole. They were despised, they were rejected, they were misrepresented. Within 10 years of Paul writing this, Rome would burn, and Nero would accuse the Christians. And that led to the persecution of Christians. And Tacitus, when he talks about Rome accusing, falsely accusing the Christians of burning Rome, adds this, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much on the charge of burning the city as of hating the human race. And that's the picture of Christians that was portrayed through Rome, that they hated people. Despite all the loving acts, despite all the sacrifices they made, even as they fought plagues at the cost of their own lives, the view of Christians was they hated the human race. Some even accused them of being cannibals as they misunderstood the Lord's table. Now, I think today, many corners of this world, Christians are just as represented. They are being persecuted, imprisoned, and martyred in many places. Why? Because they love God and they love people. In the Middle East, Christians are called infidels, corruptors of morality, corruptors of children. Is that who we are? In the West, we're called bigots and misogynists and homophobes. Arrogant, controlling, judgmental. These are labels we live with here and now. But one day, it says God is going to reveal who we are. That what they considered judgmentalism was loving corrective surgery we were hoping to give. The preaching that we brought of the gospel itself was not judgmental. It was not narrow-minded. It was life itself. We were not hateful and bitter. But we loved God and we loved others. Can you live with the labels you have today? Knowing the label that you will have for eternity when you are revealed. The passage also says that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. Our world is beautiful. We sang about it. The psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The world is beautiful, but it is still broken. It is still an anguish. It is going to be much more beautiful, much more complete and full. Uh, scholar N.T. Wright, when he talks about the recreation of heaven and earth, he compares it to the resurrected body of Christ. Think of the physical body of Christ that could be tortured, torn apart by whips, punctured by nails, pierced by thorns, stuck through with a spear, tired in anguish, breathless, and eventually lifeless and laid in a tomb. Now compare that To the body of Jesus after he is resurrected. He still eats and he drinks, he laughs, he enjoys his friends, he's in communion with them, and yet his body is never touched again by spear, nail, thorn, or lashes. You see, creation itself is going to be so much more perfect and beautiful without pain. Think of Eden and the paradise that God created us for. That's what he's bringing back. The passage also talks about our adoption as sons. Now, earlier in Romans 8, he talked about adoption as sons. He says, you are adopted... This the Spirit of God, or God has given you the Spirit of adoption. So when you believe in Jesus Christ, you become a special child of God. You were adopted, and the Spirit himself says in us, Abba, Father. Abba is the most intimate term that can be used between a child and a father, similar to our Dada, Daddy. And so we are brought into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ with God through Jesus Christ when we believe. We should feel that, that difference in relationship. But there's more. He talks about another adoption, and not another, it's just the completion and the fulfillment, the fullness of the current adoption. Think of your most intimate, special, close times you have. God. But I imagine even in those times you're saying, I want to get closer. And then of course there's a time when you don't feel so close and then you're saying, I want to get closer. You won't say that when Christ returns. Abba Father, you was as close and as intimate with God as you want to be. That's what we were created for. And our sin keeps us from that. Our sin keeps us from understanding the heights and depths and widths and breadth of the love of God. And Paul prays we might get it, but it's unfathomable in this current state. But it won't be there. It's sin corrupts our love for God, but it won't in eternity. He said he talks about the redemption of our bodies. Scripture said that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. That means there's others coming. That's us. And what Jesus' body was like, our bodies are going to be like. They don't age. They don't hurt. They don't get sick. They don't suffer. no more pain to limit us, no more suffering to depress us, no more sorrows to break our hearts, and no more death to take loved ones from us, and no more sin to afflict us. Fictitional superheroes would love to have the bodies that we're going to have in eternity. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, Paul could be honest about the sufferings in his life. He could groan. But see, the word groaning here when it says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan. It, there's two parts to it. It's the groaning of all. Oh, another snowstorm. Uh, it's the groaning of the pain now. But it's the groaning of childbirth. There's pain, but there's a pain that is going to bring a new life. And so our groaning is about the pain now, but it is also about the desire and want for that something more. Paul understood that. And he said, I compare the sufferings, and they are nothing in light of the glory. He lays that out very specifically in Second Corinthians chapter 4. And he says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, as we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For The things that are seen are transient. The things that are not seen are eternal. See, Paul had spiritual eyes. And he said, we don't lose heart. Yeah, we suffer. We go through a lot and you read, read earlier in the chapter. Incredible suffering. He, he lived under the shadow of death constantly. He said, but we don't lose heart. We know the outer self is wasting away. Does that bother you? It is. But as the outer self wastes away, the inner self can be renewed. The inner self could become more and more alive, even as we age. If we do what Paul didn't, consider the sufferings. That's nothing in light of the glory. Paul puts it this way in this passage. Light momentary affliction. Now, you, we might read that and go, oh, Paul didn't have it as bad as we did. As we do, right? I mean, his affliction was light and momentary. That's not what my affliction is like. Well, later in the book, he uh, talks about his affliction a little bit. Chapter 11, he says, compared to the others uh, that are trying to supplant him, he says, I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rod, once I was stoned, and left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own country, from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. The emotional burden I carry. Whoa. Paul says, light momentary affliction. I say, unbearable, unrelenting affliction. What's the difference between the way I look at it and Paul looks at it? He says, because Paul said, "This momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And what he's saying is, I put my affliction on a scale, and then I put the glory that is to come on the scale. and There is no comparison. See, the difference between Paul and me is I look at the affliction, I look at the suffering, I moan for myself. Paul groans for the longing of what he knows is going to come and he endures today because he knows what tomorrow brings. And we can all endure the snowstorm today if we believe there's a spring around the corner. We can take another snowstorm, can't we? But when we know spring's coming, that's what Paul did. He knew spring was coming. Uh, one pastor puts it this way, gives an illustration. He said, if you take two people and you give them the same job, you put them in a room 10 hours a day, 6 days a week, putting widgets together. You tell one man, at the end of 6 months, I'm going to give you $10,000. He's going to work and he's going to begin to think about that and he's going to look at the work and see how tedious the work is, how inane it is, the number of hours he's spending to get, what, only $10,000. He's going to complain about the job, he's going to complain about the work and he's going to complain about the boss. You tell the other person she's going to get at the end of six months, she's going to get $10 million dollars. Her attitude's going to be quite different. Same work, but she'll probably be singing away, thinking of how easy this work is. She can't believe her good fortune. And the boss is the greatest there ever could be. You see, it's our view of the future that informs our perspective of the present. And that's what Paul's saying. I look at the things not seen, and that 's what saves me here in hope in hope we are saved now he 's not talking about if you hope hard enough, you get eternal life. what he 's saying that the salvation he 's talking about is the fullness of life right now, saving this life, making it having it be meaningful and full as God meant it to be, and that 's going to happen when we have faith, looking forward to always the $10 million, the glory that is yet to be revealed. We groan today, but we won't groan in eternity because Jesus Christ groaned for us. While he was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting Psalm 22. But he was experiencing Psalm 22. Because at that moment, not only was he physically dying, but he was spiritually dead. He took our sins upon himself, and when he took our sins upon him, God looked at him and saw sin. And rejected him so he could accept us. Psalm 22, one, the verse he began to quote, goes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Never thought God, who is in control of all, would groan. But he did for you and for me so we would not have to groan in eternity. Our Father, we thank you for the hope and we know we've just scratched the surface here today. There is so much more in that picture of eternity that Paul was able to see with spiritual eyes. I pray, Lord, that we would add hope to faith and love as important ingredients in our lives, important attitudes, and that we'd fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of faith, the one who brings glory one day, and allow that to transform our perspective about today. Amen.